Thank you for tuning into our Podbean subscription. We hope that you enjoy the message and we trust that God will speak to your heart. If you would like to sow into the ministry of Rebirth, please feel free to do so. You will find our banking details along with our PayFast link in the sermon description. Now, let's get straight into this week's message. Amen and amen. Good morning, church. Good morning. Thank you so much, um, Inga. I thought Inga was just a singer, uh, but you have such a wonderful uh, story of God's grace. Hallelujah. Um, hell lost another one. Amen. Amen. Yes, sir. Amen. Uh, we decided uh, during the next couple of months just to substitute our song items and just give some space for personal testimony. Uh, and so far we've really been receiving such good ministry. Uh, we also decided just for the next couple of weeks we won't be having uh, offering talks. Instead, after the testimony, um, testimonials that are shared, we'll just pass the buckets around. Um, so the banking details uh, will be uh, put on the screen and the ushers, uh, not like the usher at the Super Bowl, uh, but uh, the ushers at the back will be passing around uh, the offering baskets. Amen. Amen. Guys, you can uh, pass the buckets around. And while they are doing that, um, I'm not sure if Sialen is around, uh, but she's had a birthday, uh, I think yesterday. Sialen uh, around. Must have my head, is my big head in the way. Or the <laughs> okay, it's fine. You can see the banking details. And... Um, just a, a thank you as well to uh, Uncle Mark. Is Uncle Mark in the house? Yeah. Where's Uncle Mark? Thank you, Uncle Mark, uh, our biggest Liverpool supporter in the house, uh, for arranging the uh, magnet signage uh, for the taxi. Thank you so much. Um, give Uncle Mark a hand, with you? And uh, just a warm welcome to all our friends and guests. Uh, also, uh, Aaron is back from Cape Town uh, receiving awards. Uh, we praise God for what He's doing in your in your life as well. Um, yeah, the, normally the guys who visit and the families that visit Cape Town don't want to come back. Uh, so thank you so much, uh, family. Let's turn to Revelation chapter four. Uh, we are continuing with our series uh, on the book of Revelation. Uh, we are some brave preachers here at Rebirth. Uh, We go where angels fear to tread. Revelation chapter 4, when you get there, please give me an amen. Also, by way of introduction, I just want to ask a few questions here this morning. Who wrote the book of John? Oh, of Revelation. my coffee there please uh, on a serious note I think I need some brain power okay there's an open book test okay okay who I'm, I'm just going to shoot it again who wrote the book of revelation and what were the circumstances surrounding the writing of revelation first hand up Mike please come forward please yeah it's your time to shine Give Mike the mic. Give, give Mike another mic. Give Mike another mic. And you've got less, less than not 30 seconds. So before, sorry, John. Oh! Let me introduce John. He was exiled, bad news. Yeah, and he wrote it there. It was basically a vision that God had given him from start to end revelation. Okay. Uh, Lerone, can you just pass the mic on to Lerone, please? Lerone, can you tell me? Why was John exiled to Patmos? Just stand up, so uh, jump on a chair if you have to. <laughs> Why was he exiled to Patmos? Because I want you last week. <laughs> Your son will find you out, my brother. Your son will find you out. He wasn't you. He wasn't you. Okay, pass the mic to Greenville. Greenville? Why was John exiled to Patmos? I also wasn't sure. <laughs> hey guys, no, no, no. Because uh, Paul was exiled to 
always witness of Christ. And um, the emperor um, exiled him to Patmos for his witness of Christ. So the emperor exiled him to Patmos for preaching the gospel and his witness for Christ. Okay, awesome. Uh, I know Dalen was in service. Uh, Dalen, <laughs> um, what? This is going to be a difficult one. What date was it speculated, or well, what are the two conflicting dates? Uh, Tammy, I see you. You're going to be next if you continue laughing. What date was it written? Was it time there we go, you're on the money. Well done. Hey, that lady must be so proud of you sitting next to you. Amen. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro. Okay, last question. Last question. Hey, Kenley, you're giving me a serious look, my brother. Okay, I need a lady. I need a lady. I need a lady. Oh, my dear Dre. Oh, my dear Dre. Oh, my dear Dre, please tell us what literary form does the book of Revelation take up? What genre is it written in? Uh, we, we, we can't hear you. We can't hear you. Don't cheat you. Fail. Apocalyptic. Thank you so much. Amen. Give the Lord a hand. Amen. Amen. Family, we are at Revelation chapter 4. This is our, part, our, our third part in the series. Please, I'll encourage you, especially if you're a visitor or you've been bunking church like Lerone, please refer back to our first message where we laid down a foundation. Uh, for our series, we spoke about the genre, how you interpret Revelation, what are the uh, conflicting interpretations of the book of Revelation. So I'll encourage you, please uh, go back to the beginning, to the beninging. Amen. Uh, Revelation chapter 4, um, and we will be reading from verse 1, and I'm reading from the ESV uh, translation. And the Bible reads as follows After this, I, John, look, and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here and I will show you what must take place after this and at once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian. And around the throne was a rainbow, not the kind of rainbows you see flashing today. There was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And they and night they never cease to say holy 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 is the lord god almighty him who was and is and is to come and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who was seated on the throne 
who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their, their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? <coughs> and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to even look at it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Amen. Amen. God bless to us the reading of his word. And I want to let you know this morning that there's nothing, absolutely nothing I can say that can out-preach, out-teach, and out-bless what we've just read here this morning. Amen. Nothing better I can say. Father, we thank you for the Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. The Lamb was worthy. The Lamb was conquered. The Lamb who is in the midst of the throne. He is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody says, Amen, amen and Amen. As our tradition is, sometimes we take a little off-ramp. And this morning, uh, I'll be sharing a case study with you. Uh, with the Bible topic, but I'm going to do it a little bit differently this morning. I'm going to kind of integrate it. Uh, and as we get into the book of Revelations, it will, uh, it will make more sense. Amen. So our case study this morning is the significant role of music, uh, the significant role that music played during apartheid. Yeah. Music has always played a significant role, an important role in our community and in society and music has especially played an important role during various socio-economic uh, or political struggles uh, throughout the period of history music just has that ability to go beyond the boundaries of mere entertainment and music can serve as a powerful tool to express resilience solidarity uh, even in times of great conflict and unrest you can look back over history, African history, South, A South African history, American history, even Arab history, and see how music played a critical role uh, in the civil rights movement in the United States with the Arab Spring uprising as well with the Vietnam protests, war protests. You, the, the, the list is endless. But during 1948 to 1994, during the apartheid era in South Africa, it was music musicians like Miriam Makeba, Hugh Masekela, and Johnny Clegg, and many others that used their music to protest against the racial injustices of South Africa. Their music became a crucial and important tool of communication and expressing the need for equal rights. The apartheid government understood the power of music. They understood the power behind this form of expression, so they implemented strict censorship laws in an attempt to control the narrative and to suppress these struggle songs. And so 
a list of songs were banned, struggle songs were banned by the apartheid government. Senzeni Na, sung by the Soul Brothers, was banned. That means, what have we done? The song Siyaya Ipitoli, we are going to Pretoria, a song that expresses the determination of, of the people to stand up against this racist government, sung by Eugene um, Tetwa. That song was banned. Amandla Wetu, which means power to us, that song was banned. It became a slogan during the rallies. That song was banned. And even the song that is incorporated into our national anthem, Kosi Sigaleli Africa, which was initially a hymn and a symbol of resistance, was banned by the apartheid government. The government understood the impact of these struggle freedom songs. And what is the impact of freedom songs? How are they able to assist during times of struggle? Firstly, struggle or freedom songs gave South Africans a platform to express their deepest struggles. Yeah. Freedom songs gave South Africans a tool to convey a strong message. Freedom songs gave South Africans an opportunity to garner international awareness of the problem and international sympathy and support. Freedom songs helped mobilize people and helped unite communities. And at rallies and campaigns, we saw how freedom songs became an inspirational tool. Now into our Bible topic, the songs of the apocalypse. Just as freedom songs played an important, significant role during struggle movements, the history of, of struggles, so did songs of worship play a significant role for the children of God during their times of persecution under the imperial cults of Rome. If you look through the book of Revelation, you will find that there are 14 references to hymns of praise. Five of those hymns are recorded to us in chapter 4 and chapter 5 alone. Smith describes the book of Revelation as being hymn-laden. He further described the hymns of Revelation as being and I quote, transparently doxological, richly instructive, and openly pastoral. In other words, these hymns are not just in praise form, but these hymns teach us something theologically. The hymns of Revelation actually place a challenge on contemporary worship music, because these hymns are very Christ-centered and very God-focused, and very gospel-centered. Much of what's needed in the gospel worship music today. You can find these hymns listed in chapter 4, verse 8, chapter 4, verse 11, three times in chapter 5, twice in chapter 7, once in chapter 11, sung by the 24 elders, again in chapter 15, sung by the tribulation saints, Twice in chapter 16, sung by the angels. Chapter 19, three times sung hymns, sung by great multitudes, by the 24 elders and the four living creatures, and again by a great multitude. These are different kind of freedom songs. Different to the struggle songs that the world sings. Those struggle songs were directed to wicked men and wicked governments in power. But these freedom songs are sung in praise to the one who sits on the throne. Those struggle songs were aimed at rallying and, and mobilizing communities in protest. But these freedom songs are aimed at rallying men and women in worship to the God of heaven and just like those struggle songs these songs of worship are also sung in times of struggle but in times of a greater struggle between good and evil in times of a great cosmic battle between light 
and darkness. And sometimes I wonder, and I think that perhaps the greatest problem we have with this generation of believers is that we have forgotten how to worship God in difficult times. Sometimes I think what the problem is with this generation of believers is that we don't know how to put our attention fully on God when things aren't going well for us. At the very hint of trouble, at the very hint of financial difficulty or a failed relationship or you've come down with the flu, you allow anything to distract you from how big God is. We have to come to a place in life where we praise Him even when we don't have a cent in our pockets. We've got to come to a place in our lives and in our faith where we are going to study the Bible and make it to connect group whether we don't have petrol in our car. I'm going to call Pastor Clint. I'm going to call Brother Dean. Get me there, sir. It's not easy, I'll admit, to praise God when you're going through hell and high water. But I want you to know that there is no time that God shouldn't be praised. Amen. Now with your Bible open, you know preachers like to say close your Bible. You keep that Bible open. (laughs) Chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapters 4 and chapter 5. To be honest, I was going to skip these chapters and get straight into the fireworks, you know? The seven tribulations, you know? The the cracking of the seals and the trumpet blast and the bowls of wrath and and the seals that are opened and, and just get into the drama of revelation. But the more I read... Uh, chapters 4 and 5, I saw that these chapters actually constitute the pivot of the book. Shriner says and tells us, and I quote, that everything else that takes place in the apocalypse turns on the hinges of the visions that's recorded here. So what John sees in chapters 4 and 5 is at the heart of the revelation. According to uh, Uh, Shimonoski, both chapters 4 and chapter 5 are foundational and programmatic for the book. Chapters 4 support, uh, takes us actually from from where we were previously with the seven churches in the province of Asia Minor. We were on earth and now chapter 4 brings us and transports us into heaven before a heavenly throne room. We move from a natural world into a supernatural world. In chapters 1 to 3, we were preoccupied with the things that are, with the present. And now from chapters 4 to 5, Uh, we get a prelude of the things that must take place of the future. The very first experience that John is overwhelmed with is is, is that in chapter 4 verse 1, he says that there was a door that was opened in heaven. And the first voice that he heard initially in chapter 1 is the voice that he hears now, which is the voice of Christ, which sounds like a trumpet saying to him, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And many who hold on to a pre-tribulation dispensationalist interpretation of the last days, or in layman's terms, believers who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, try to place the rapture at this point. Why? Because John is called up by a voice that sounds like a trumpet. And because from chapters 4 and 5, there's no onward reference to the term church. But a proper reading of the passage will actually show you that we do not have here a corporate snatching of the church into heaven. We have the peculiar and particular calling up of John himself into a visionary state in heaven. So this passage does not make room for the rapture of the saints or teach the rapture 
of the church. In fact, there is no explicit or implicit reference to the rapture in the book of Revelation. And you can take that as food for thought. In verse 2, chapter 4, John tells us that he was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven. The very first thing he sees is a throne set in heaven. This is the very first impression that moves him. This is the very first vision that engulfs him is that there is a throne in heaven. He sees this throne and there are only four or five other men in scripture that have had a visionary experience of the throne of God and the courts of God. That's Micaiah in 1 Kings 22, Isaiah in chapter 6 where he sees the Lord high and lifted up, Ezekiel in chapter 1 where he sees the Lord seated on a throne and in a wheel, in the middle of a wheel, and in Daniel in chapter 7 he sees the throne of God, the Ancient of Days, and then Stephen has a brief a momentary experience of seeing Christ at the right hand of the Father who stands up to his attention when he's stoned to death. But John would now have a more detailed and overwhelming experience and vision of the throne of God. And in this vision he becomes fixated on the throne. He speaks about the one who is on the throne. He speaks about the activity around the throne. He speaks about the seven spirits of God before the throne. He speaks about the lamb in the midst of the throne. He's overwhelmed and fixated on the throne. The throne represents the center of all existence. The throne of God represents the fountainhead of all reality. The throne of God represents a place of absolute power and unlimited authority in all of creation, in both the seen world and the unseen world. This throne would go on to become the centerpiece of John's apocalyptic vision and would become the constant point of reference in everything he sees. Almost in every chapter, he makes reference to the throne. In fact, 62 times in the New Testament, the term throne is used. 47 times of those 62 times, it's referenced in the book of Revelation. Yeah. 36 times out of those 47 times, John is making specific reference to the throne of God. So almost in every chapter, he's making reference to the throne of God. But I want you to understand that John's ruling fixation is not on an empty throne, but on the one who sits on the throne. His fixation is on the occupied throne. What does it mean when we say God is on the throne? You know, this has become like a cliche today, you know, but I want to remind you that this is no empty platitude. When we say God is on the throne, we mean that history isn't spinning out of his control. And that he is never confronted by any unexpected emergency. That God is never caught off guard or taken aback or caught by surprise. Nothing catches him of God, regardless of how devastating it is. Whether it's a life-threatening diagnosis, whether it's a death of a precious loved one, whether it's a loss of a job, whether you've lost your business, whether the banks have seized your house, nothing catches him by surprise. Your life is not spinning out of his control. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things. Someone say all things. All things things are subject to his immediate control. All things are moving in accordance to his eternal purpose. 
And they are all things that he is working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He is all-knowing, omniscient. He is all-powerful, omnipotent, and he is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He is so all-knowing and all-powerful and omnipotent and loving and transcendent and magnanimous that he is providentially working out every affair in your life for his glory. Yes. Yes. Without violating your will. That's how supreme and transcendent of a being he is. He is orchestrating every affair in your life without violating your free will. Secondly, he's working out things in your life with your poor decisions. With your lackadaisical, indifferent attitude, he's still working it out. In fact, he is so all-powerful and all-knowing that he's worked it out already before you were even born. What does it mean that God is on the throne? It means that God's power and God's authority is absolute and unrivaled. He is under no rule. There is no law outside of his own will and nature. In fact, God is a law unto himself. And he is under no obligation to give an account to anyone. His power is unrivaled and unlimited and he exercises his power as he wills, where he wills, and when he wills. There is no government higher than him, no power or nation higher than him, no army in hell that can defy or threaten his rule. And that's the first thing John sees when all hell has broken out in Asia Minor, under the imperial cult, when the church has been thrown into coliseums, when the church has been burnt at the stake. The very first thing God shows John is I'm on the throne. Regardless of what thrones rule in the earth, I am on the throne. Jesus stood before Pilate in John 19, and Jesus was silent. And Pontius Pilate, with all his pomp and authority, he said to Jesus, Do you not know that I have authority to release you or the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him and said, You have no authority over me unless it's been given to you from above. I want to go as far to say this. Even Sir Ramaphosa right now is there because God wanted him there. There is no authority given to men except it comes from above. In verse 2, we see John goes on to speak about the throne and he begins to describe him who sits on the throne. But he doesn't go into any detail in his description of God. He doesn't give us any form of God. He just tells us about two emanating, glistening light forms and colors that appear as jasper and sardius jaspers possibly a jade green and sardius possibly a ruby red stone and he tells us that he who sat on the throne had the appearance of jasper and the sardius stone cornelian stone clock tells us in a quote he said john did not go into detail to describe this being divine being occupying the throne He did not attempt to point out any similitude, shape, or dimensions of the one who sits on the throne. John rather aims to point out the glory and effulgence and beauty that surrounds the seemingly distant figure. Perhaps John, unquote, perhaps John doesn't go into detail to describe the appearance of God to communicate to us that he's Glory and his beauty is actually beyond our grasp, beyond our vocabulary, 
beyond our imagination and our highest praise and our highest thoughts because he is all surpassing in greatness he's the transcendent one and paul tells us that the father dwells in an unapproachable light and no one has seen the father except the son who was in the bosom of the father Morris goes on to highlight that these two precious stones carry a significance because they are seeing seen on the breastplate of the high priest the jasper is actually the first stone on the high priest belt breastplate and the sardius stone is the last stone of the 12 precious stones in the breastplate of the high priest communicating to us that he is the first and the lost and all things in between so not only does john go on to tell us about the throne and who sits and occupies the throne but he begins to tell us in verses 3 and 4 about what and who surrounds the throne he tells us there's a rainbow like emerald around the throne he tells us that there's crown 24 elders around the throne now these 24 elders are not human they are in high-ranking angelic order which represent the 12 tribes of israel and the 12 apostles they are representative of humanity john goes on to tell us now not only about what's around the throne but he begins to tell us what's coming from the throne he says there's lightning and thunder and voices coming from the throne of god then into verse 6, he details the who and what is before the throne of God. Have you noticed that the, the throne room of God is not empty? Yeah. It's not vacant, you know? God is constantly in fellowship. He tells us about who and what is before the throne of God. He says that the Holy Spirit represented in seven lamps of fire which is explained to be the seven spirits of God highlighting the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit who is perfect begins to tell us that there is a sea of glass like crystal around the throne of God which signifies his holy separation even from the heavenly beings verses 9, 6 to 9 he goes on to tell us about who is in the midst of the throne and around the throne he tells us that there are four living creatures each with six wings that resemble a lion a calf a man and an eagle they are around the throne verses 8 to 9 john then brings our attention to the worship that takes place around the throne room of god four living creatures are crying out night and day holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come they are singing high praise to the one who sits on the throne and this repeated phrase holy 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 while it does signify god as a triune being this is actually a literary instrument uh, called epizeuxis or diacope which which simply means that when you repeat a word in immediate succession it intensifies its meaning so when the angels are crying out holy 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 is the lord god almighty they are saying there is no body that is as holy as him yes. then the 24 elders drop their crowns down before the throne and they also begin to worship and now they cry out you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and were created. Now their worship centers on God being the creator of all things. And then when we get into chapter 5, the focus shifts. We move from the throne upon which God sat on and occupied in chapter 4 and now the focus moves not to the throne but to a scroll in the hands of the one who sits on the throne and if we get into read a little further we see that the focus shifts even further from the one who sits on the throne to the lamb who is in the midst of the throne we also see that not only does the focus shift from 
the throne to the scroll from the one who sits on the throne to the lamb in the midst but we see that the worship shifts the worship shifts from from God being praised for being a creator chapter 4 verse 11 to God being worshipped as being a redeemer for they cry out in chapter 5 9 to 10 worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed the people of God then in verse 12 of chapter 5 worthy is the lamb that was slain yeah. now the worship is focused on God our Redeemer yes. from creation to recreation that's why Jesus said if you're going to enter the kingdom you you don't have to be created yes. you must not just be created you must be recreated yes. you must be born again you must experience God as your creation uh, creator and Redeemer Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, we have the attention on the scroll. And we're told that there's writing on both the inside and outside of the scroll. Question is, what does the scroll represent? The scroll is sealed with seven seals. Seven seals. Barclay tells us that the best way to understand the scroll is that the scroll represents God's will and his final settlement of the affairs of the universe. This is based also on the customary idea and context of, the, of Roman law because uh, under lo Roman law, wills were sealed seven times and seven witnesses had to break the seals open to validify the will. Falvurt also supports this view and states that Roman law required a will to be sealed seven times illustrated by the wills that were left by, left by uh, Augustus and, and their successors. While this paints an accurate picture, I believe, of what the seal scroll represents, I, I like the idea of Schreiner, Thomas Schreiner, who argues and states that if we see the scroll simply as a contract deed, then the emphasis would be on the inheritance of God's people. Schreiner continues to state that the scroll is actually similar to what Jewish apocrypha uh, referenced to being the heavenly book, the book of destiny, which traces and speaks of God's redemptive plan for the world. Schreiner reinforces this argument by stating that since the unraveling and unrolling of the scroll contextually cannot be separated from the Lamb of God's atoning work, this seal scroll must include both the judgments of God on the world and the redemption of man on the earth. So this seal scroll symbolizes, according to Smalley, God's salvific plan and God's plan of judgment for the world. By the scroll, God would assert his sovereignty and, he, he, and his justice over a rebellious world. By the scroll, God would achieve his loving purpose for all of creation through the victory of the Lamb of God. So this throne, scroll, seal scroll represents God's judgment on the wicked, including Satan, and God's redemptive, final, uh, cons consummating redemptive plan for his creation until the return of Jesus Christ. So John sees these, the scrolls sealed with, with seven seals, and then in verses 2 and 3, he hears and sees a mighty angel issuing out a call. He says in verse 2 and 3, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Morris stated that it had to be a supremely strong angel that could issue out such a great challenge to all of creation. And so the search was on. The search was on in heaven. All of the hosts of heaven were there 
the angels, the archangels, the cherubims, the seraphims, and all the saints of antiquity. Gabriel, Michael, Enoch, Abraham, who believed God, Moses, who spoke to God as though face to face, Elijah, who was caught up in the chariot, David and Solomon, and all the prophets were there. Paul, the apostle Paul was there. John himself was there, but they were not worthy to open the scroll. There's a further search extended into the earth of all the world's rulers, all the educated men, all the preachers and scholars, the rich and famous, the politicians and philanthropists, all of these were found not worthy. No angel in heaven, no saint on earth, and no prophet in the realm of the departed was found worthy for the task. There was no one in all of creation worthy to even look at the scroll. And there's this dramatic pause and suspense in the throne room. And with this suspense and pause came the weeping of John. Penfield states that this was not a silent weep. You know, like when your soccer team loses, Uncle Mark, you know? <laughs> this was the kind of, scree- uh, kind of weeping that conveys the idea of uncontrollable sobbing. The Greek word paints the picture of a loud wail. John is weeping bitterly. He's weeping as though he's weeping for the dead. Why is John so devastated that no one was worthy to open the scroll? Why is he weeping for all of creation? Because John knows what the scroll represents. So his tears and his weeping are uncontrollable. He's sobbing. And his sobbing really depicts a sense of hopelessness. He's overwhelmed with a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. And that speaks to us all. It speaks to our inability to affect our destiny. We were totally helpless and hopeless to redeem ourselves. We were totally helpless to save ourselves from our sins and addictions. We are totally helpless to present our case before a just and righteous God. We are totally helpless and hopeless to free ourselves from the clutches of sin and death. Right now, where we sit, where I stand, we are totally helpless to serve God without His help. His tears, John's tears that, that he cried and, 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 and shed represent all of humanity. Those tears represented all of our countless tears that we shed as a result of a fallen world and our fallen nature. How many uncontrollable tears have we shed because of the effects of sin and our decisions and, and our fallen world? Sin has occasioned many tears. Sin has occasioned every cry of grief. Sin has occasioned every pain of agony. Sin has dug every grave and built every coffin. Sin has left this world devastated, ruining men, ruining women, ruining children, even ruining angels. John is weeping as though there's no hope and no glorious future for the world ahead. He knows that if these seals cannot be broken, there is no justice for the children of God that's suffering on earth. He knows that if these seals are not broken, there is no judgment on the wicked. He knows that if these seals are not broken, there's no future redemption or future hope of inheritance. There's no heaven and earth. Family, I want to remind you today, 
and all of our hopes do not lie in this world this world was subjected into futility this world is a fallen world this world can never offer you the promise of eternal life if all we are doing is so fixated on our labor and grinding and hustling and trudging and toiling for all that this world can offer we are going to come up short because everything this world offers is temporary everything that this world offers is fleeting there's no dream you can accomplish in this world and be fully satisfied you will lay down your head on your pillow at night and feel that knowing vacuum saying what does it mean to profit the whole world and lose your soul you will spend your entire life piling up those degrees making the millions and you will still come up empty and lost there is a more glorious world to fight for there is a more glorious world to hope for there is a better promise that awaits those who will put their faith in christ Amen. john is weeping because he sees there's no hope of god's glorious redemptive plan being carried out because no one's worthy to open the seals and so in this dramatic pause and suspense an elder comes walking to john taps him on this on the shoulder and consoles him comes to rescue john from his grief in verse 5 of chapter 5 he says weep no more behold the lion of the tribe of judah Amen. the root of david has conquered Amen. so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals verse 6 and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders john now turns to see this lion but as he's turning to see this lion he sees a lamb standing mm. yes. as though it had been slain with seven horns representing the, the lamb's authority perfect authority and with seven eyes which represent the holy spirit he turns to see the lion but he sees the lamb slain you know when nations want symbols of power they conjure up the mighty beasts and praise they can think of yeah. russia the bear britain the lion france symbolized by the tiger the usa has the golden eagle bald eagle but the kingdom of god does not use the symbol of the lion because the lion of judah is only referenced once in revelations the kingdom of god uses the symbol of the slain lamb so john's turning to see a lion but he sees a lamb that was slain the lamb took the scroll the lamb was worthy because the lamb had conquered what did the lamb conquer he conquered sin and death he paid the penalty for sin he became a propitiation for our sins and iniquity what did the lamb conquer he conquered the grave so that the grave and hell have no boast the death has no sting what did the lamb conquer he conquered every dark power and principality of wickedness the bible says he made an open show and spectacle of the powers of darkness what did the lamb conquer he conquered redemption for you and i Amen. once the lamb gets the, the seal scroll we are told that there is a breakout in praise Hallelujah. the four living creatures and the 24 elders each grab a harp each grab a golden bowl which represent the prayers of the saints and the bible says they begin to sing a new song they previ previously sung songs glorifying 
the one who sits on the throne, the Creator God, and now they rub in a new song glorifying the Lamb in the midst of the throne, the Redeemer of the world. And while they, they break out in worship, we told that in verse 11 that 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels now gather and join in this concerto of worship in what seems to be a rising crescendo of praise in heaven. And they break out in a fourth song, in symphony, before the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne. And they sing out, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory and power and wisdom and strength and honor and blessing and glory. Hallelujah. And while they worshiping, finally another company of worships join in on the song and they, and they add in a fifth song of praise in verse 13 but this time it's not an order of angels this time it's all of creation that joins in in a fifth song to worship the lamb and the one who sits on the throne and they cry out blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever amen all this worship, all this praise directed to the Lamb that was slain and the one who sits on the throne. I can never for the life of me understand how folks can stand still with their hands in their pocket, their phones in their hands while we are worshiping the lamb and the one who sits on the throne forever. I can't understand how we could be bored of worship and stuff and starchy when the one who sits on the throne and the lamb in the midst of the throne purchased our salvation. How dare we offer him a drop of praise for an ocean of mercy. He is worthy. We don't, we don't praise Him when we feel like it. Yes. We praise Him because He is worthy. Yes. And He's conquered. Yes. Why was Jesus worthy to open the seal scroll? He has a few reasons. Firstly, because creation is utterly, hear me, creation is utterly incapable of deciding and affecting its own destiny. Yes. Only someone above the order of created beings can determine the course of history. Secondly, since the seal scroll represents God's final redemptive plan and judgments on the earth, it is only a crucified Christ and Savior that is the answer to the riddle of life. Yeah. No angel, no man on earth, no teacher, no preacher, no major one, no one on the earth. Christ did for you and I what no man or angel could ever do for us, what we could not do for ourselves. Christ was the perfect mediator between God and man because he was the God-man. He perfectly represented God and he perfectly represented a sinless humanity. God did in Christ what we could not do for ourselves. Christ became the meeting place and juncture between heaven and earth, life and death. But what interests me in particular since there's only one reference to Jesus being the Lion of the tribe of Judah in the book of Revelation. Why is Jesus being called the Lion of the tribe of Judah? We sing about it. We talk about it. We've got songs about it. But every time I ask a Christian or a believer, what does it mean that he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah? They just say, because he's fierce. You know, lions roar. They are these majestic, bold creatures. They're the king of the jungle. So, so, so this image of the lion appeals to our senses and imagination. But that is not the reason why he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
If we go to understand why he is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, we need to go back to what Martin Luther called the Proto-Evangelium. That's Genesis 3 verse 15, the first reference of the gospel. Where God promises uh, Eve after she fell into sin, he said, she said, the seed of your womb, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Yes. And so the promised seed becomes the hope of the world. Yes. The promised seed becomes the answer to the riddle of life. And then you know the story, Cain kills Abel, Seth becomes the carrier of the promised seed, man becomes exceedingly wicked, God drowns the earth in a flood, calls Noah, Noah and his sons fail, but there is a promised seed, there is still a promised seed in the earth. So God comes to Abraham and makes a covenant with Abraham. In what Paul stated in Galatians chapter 3, that God foreseeing that he would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you and in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Yes. And then we get into the story of Joseph, chapters 37 and 50. Genesis tells a story of two of four patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so chapters 37 to 50 gives us a story of Joseph. But if all you see is the story of Joseph, you've missed the story. Because the story of Joseph between chapters 37 and 50 is actually a story of two sons. It's the story of the favored son, Joseph. And it's the story of the promised seed in Judah. That's why in Genesis chapter 37, verse 18 and 28, there's a special reference to Judah, who convinces his brother not to kill Joseph in the pit, but rather sell him for money. We can make a profit out of it. So Judah is not looking like an upstanding citizen. Judah is not painted in any good light yet. And then in chapter 38, we have an entire chapter dedicated to Judah. Yeah. And we told about Judah's moral fav uh, failure, how he married a Canaanite foreign woman, how she dies and how he, he, he sees Tamar, his, his barren daughter-in-law, and, and she's posing as a prostitute. And, and he eventually you know, walks up to and sleeps with his daughter-in-law. And she falls pregnant. And this kind of paints Judah's moral failure. And then to make it worse, in chapter 38 you have Judah's failure. In chapter 39 we have Joseph who resists Potiphar's wife. So he's being contrasted with a, with a man of integrity. Who has the favor of God who's, who's Joseph. Judah failed. Joseph succeeded. Fast forward the story. When Joseph is promoted to prime minister in all of Egypt, and there's a famine in the land in chapter 43, Joseph's brothers now come before him, not knowing it's him, and they're begging for food. And Joseph is overwhelmed. They did not recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognized them. And Joseph got to figuring out, I have a younger brother, Benjamin. And so what Joseph does is that he begins to accuse them, you know, intentionally. This is his, his, his scheme of things because he wants to see Benjamin. And so, and so he sets up this whole plot now to bring them back again to Egypt. And he says, I want, I want to see Benjamin or else, or else you guys are going to be arrested and killed. Yeah. And so the brothers go back to Jacob, but Jacob is in his years, he's an aged old man, and he said to his, brothers, his, his sons, if anything happens to Benjamin, I will surely die. Because I cannot lose another son. Yeah. 
I've already lost Joseph. So what does Judah do? This is Judah's turning point. This is his redemptive point in the story. Judah makes a pledge to Jacob. Remember he helped sell Joseph? But now he makes a pledge to Jacob and he says, I will stand surety for Benjamin and I will not allow any harm to befall him. And they come before Joseph. They bring Benjamin before him. And in chapter 44, we have the longest speech recorded of Judah wanting to stand surety for Benjamin. Judah fighting for the life of Benjamin. He says to Joseph, I will die in his place. Come on. Come on. You must be blind to not see the gospel Come in this. On. Come on. Just as Judah was willing to stand surety for Benjamin. Just as Judah was willing to take the blame for Benjamin. Just as Judah was willing to sacrifice his life for Benjamin. Jesus was willing to die for you and I. Amen. So fast forward the story on Jacob's deathbed. Jacob prophetically blesses all his children. And when he comes to Judah, he says, Judah, you are a young lion. And the scepter of royalty will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is the most obscure Hebrew term. It's translated Messiah. There will always be a king, a royal lineage from the line of Judah. Judah received this blessing because he carried the promise, because of a promise God made to Abraham and to the woman in chapter 3 verse 15. But we learn a very interesting truth about the gospel in the story of Judah is that a king must be able to pledge his life for his people. Yeah. And this is why Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has conquered and he took your place and died in your place and was punished as though the life he lived, what, the, the life you lived was his life. Yes. All your sins imputed unto him so that you could love. Now you ask me, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Can we stand? Hallelujah.